0: This is damn interesting. Headphones recommended. It was the middle of a cool September night in Munich, Germany. The year was 1939. In an otherwise unoccupied auditorium, a man knelt on hands and knees chiseling a square hole into a large stone pillar. The lights were all turned out, but a small flashlight dimmed to the handkerchief provided a pallid little puddle of light. The man had wrapped his chisel in cloth to quiet his hammer strikes. Whenever there was some unexpected sound, he froze. Whenever a truck rumbled past the building, he seized the opportunity to chisel more vigorously. It was exceedingly tedious and slow work. The man working there was a 36-year-old German handyman named Georg Elzer. But handyman isn't exactly the right word. In his three and a half decades, he had cultivated many skills, including clockmaking, cabinet building, master carpentry, and stone quarrying. And the task at hand required all of his diverse expertise. The room where he worked was a beer hall in Munich, known as the Burger Keller, and it already had an interesting role in history. In Germany, it's a tradition for citizens to crowd into such beer halls to engage in lively political and social debates, and to sing beer-infused trinkleiter late into the night. And in this particular hall, just a few feet from where Elzer was chiseling his hole, just 16 years earlier, a young Adolf Hitler had stepped up to the podium to convince a crowd of citizens to support his attempt to overthrow the kaput German government. It was an event history would come to know as the Beer Hall Putsch. Hitler's Putsch had not been successful that night back in 1923. He did succeed in winning over the crowd, but he and his cohorts lacked a coherent plan and when the crowd spilled out into the streets and began marching on government buildings, they were scattered by armed police and soldiers. Two days later, Hitler was captured and imprisoned for his role in the coup attempt. But despite this initial setback, the Putsch set into motion a series of events that led to Adolf Hitler becoming the de facto dictator on the 2nd of August, 1934.
1: When Hitler goes to vote for himself, the cheers speak louder than words. And with the Fuhrer, millions of Germans go to the poll and everyone who votes receives a badge inscribed with the words, freedom and bread. With only one party to vote for, it's hardly an election as we know them in this country. But all Germany seems to be anxious to show its solidarity behind the dictator and its approval of his policy. And then the votes are counted. And very soon it becomes obvious that even allowing for the special circumstance, it's a striking Nazi victory. So once more, the mystery man of European politics gets his own way in his own country.
0: The citizenry enthusiastically renewed their support for the National Socialist German Workers' Party in subsequent elections. But election isn't exactly the right word. The ballots asked each voter whether he or she wished to choose the party of our leader, Adolf Hitler. There was one large, prominent circle in the center for voters to mark Ja, clearly indicating the correct vote. There was a much smaller circle banished to the corner for those who preferred to respond Nein. When the votes were tallied, the Yaws had it. Once Hitler was in power, he established a tradition of returning to this same berger Keller every year on the anniversary of the original botched putsch to commemorate the event. Every year, he sat at the same podium, alongside the same men, at the same hour, and fomented nostalgic fanaticism among party loyalists with a two-hour diatribe. For the 1938 speech, Georg Elzer, the carpenter-clockmaker, had been among the thousands in attendance. The next year, in 1939, he arrived a few months early, toolbox in hand. Hitler's annual commemoration speech at the Berger Keller was why Elzer was there, on hands and knees in the dark, painstakingly chipping a hole into the stonework. Hitler's annual speech was why, when the sun began to rise, Elzer would sweep the stone chips and dust into his suitcase, delicately reassemble the wood wall paneling to conceal his work, gather up his tools, then slip back to the adjoining hotel where he was renting a room. Hitler's annual speech was why Elzer would return again the next evening, eat some dinner in the restaurant upstairs, then slip away to hide in a utility closet until all of the patrons and staff left for the day. He would then creep back to this spot behind the podium, lay out his supplies, carefully disassemble the wood paneling, and resume his slow, steady chiseling into the pillar. And he would do it all again the next night. And the next. Georg Elzer had always been a quiet, reserved German citizen. During the years when his clockmaking and cabinet-building skills were not in demand, he had spent some time working in a stone quarry, and later in the armament factories of the increasingly militarized post-World War I Germany. He was also said to have quite a knack for the zither, a musical instrument a bit like a harp combined with an acoustic guitar. When Hitler's speeches were broadcast, he left his radio switched off. When the Third Reich held elections or referendums, he declined to vote. As he passed by Third Reich rallies, he did not perform the Heil Hitler salute. He was technically a leftist, but not a very active or outspoken one. Most of his family and friends at the time would have described him as essentially apolitical. But apolitical isn't exactly the right word. He harbored profound political opinions. He merely kept them concealed behind an apolitical facade. Elzer spent months of nights returning to the vast, dark beer hall to work on his secret project. The German army invaded Poland even as Elzer chipped away at the stonework, which resulted in more frequent patrols of the building for Elzer to hide from. One morning, as Elzer was sleepily sneaking out of the beer hall with a suitcase full of rock chips and dust, he ran into a waiter who had arrived early for his shift. the alarmed employee summoned a manager to confront the evident trespasser. Elzer just calmly explained that he was an innocent customer who had found the door unlocked and let himself in. He politely ordered, and received, a cup of coffee. The next night, he was back at work in the basement, chiseling the pillar of the burger keller. In early November, as Elzer's back was becoming so weary from stooping that he could barely stand up straight, the cavity finally reached the precise necessary specifications. 80 centimeters by 80 centimeters. It was deep enough that a crouching man could almost squeeze inside. Tomorrow, he would insert the box. It was the weekend, so the beer hall was occupied by dancing locals late into the evening, but Elzer was patient. After the last of the patrons departed and the lights went out, Elzer slipped into the hall and again disassembled the woodwork of the pillar behind the lectern. The box contained the invention that had been occupying most of Elzer's recent daylight hours. It was a delicately assembled clock of his own design. Two clocks, actually. These were a surprise for the Fuhrer. The clocks were unusual in that they were designed to run backwards. The inside of the box was lined with sheets of soundproofing cork. Also inside was an assortment of keepsakes Elzer had purloined from previous employers, blasting caps from the rock quarry, and multiple packets of gunpowder from the armament factory. He set both of his handmade precision mechanical clocks, a primary and a failsafe, to count down for approximately six days. He then carefully slid the 80cm by 80cm wooden box into the congruent cavity. He protected the box with a thin sheet of metal in case anyone tried to hang a decoration there, then reassembled the woodwork to restore the pillar to its ordinary appearance. He then left the Burger Brow Keller for what he intended to be the last time. He drove three hours to Stuttgart to stay at his sister's house so he would be closer to his planned escape route. On the night of the 6th of November, two days before the big event, Elzer dreamt vividly that both of his timers had malfunctioned and stopped. Rattled, he decided to return to Munich to revisit his invention one last time to calm his raw nerves. So, on the eve of Adolf Hitler's much-publicized commemorative speech, Elzer snuck back into the Burger Braukeller, uncovered his compartment, and listened to the comforting tick of German engineering. He could see that both timers were working flawlessly. Both would strike zero at 9.20 p.m. the following night, about halfway through the Fuhrer's two-hour speech. Elzer delicately reconcealed the compartment, slipped out of the beer hall, and started the long drive back to Stuttgart. Tomorrow, he would slip across the Swiss-German border. The moment was almost at hand. Georg Elzer was beside himself with anxiety. Some months earlier, he had pre-scouted a stretch of border that was neither fenced nor patrolled by border guards. This is where he would make his escape, well before either of the hidden timers struck zero. Unfortunately, Elzer's prior border exploration had occurred before Germany had invaded Poland. As a nation officially in conflict, German border vigilance had been stepped up considerably. Even as Elzer hastened toward his escape, within sight of Switzerland, he was spotted by guards. He was escorted to a guard station where a live broadcast of Hitler's ongoing speech was playing on the radio. The guards ordered the cagey German to turn out his pockets, revealing a curious array of possessions. A postcard from the historic beer hall known as Burger Braukeller a pair of wire cutters, and numerous notes and sketches pertaining to some kind of complex apparatus. The border guards turned the eccentric fellow over to the local Gestapo office for further questioning. Precisely on schedule, at 9.20 p.m., The primary timer inside the box tripped a lever, which thrust a firing pin into the primer of a high-caliber rifle round. This rifle round detonated a cluster of blasting caps, which in turn activated over 100 pounds of gunpowder. The lectern and stage were both comprehensively obliterated. Several support pillars in the beer hall buckled, the walls lurched inward, and the roof crashed down upon the people inside. The Fuhrer was uninjured by the blast. Uninjured isn't exactly the right word. He was, in fact, unaware that the explosion had even occurred. He was sitting rather comfortably on a train bound for Berlin. All flights had been delayed due to heavy fog, so this year, for the first time, the Fuhrer had deviated from his traditional schedule. He had started his speech 30 minutes early and shortened it to just one hour rather than the traditional two. This afforded him the time to return home via train. Hitler had stepped out of the Berger-Brau Keller just 13 minutes before the device automatically activated, and he did not learn of the assassination attempt until well after the building had been shattered into a collapsed ruin. Later, when he was informed of the close call, Hitler responded, A man has to be lucky. Some of the audience members, and some of the Berger-Brau staff, were less lucky. Many stragglers had lingered in the beer hall, and seven were killed outright when Elser's bomb exploded. Another died later of his wounds. At least 63 were injured. Judging from the utter atomization of the lectern, if Hitler had been sitting there at 9.20pm as originally scheduled, his contribution to history would have been sharply abbreviated, as would the constellation of dark stars surrounding him, including Goebbels, Hess, and Himmler. Georg Elser was also a less lucky man. Owing to the fairly damning evidence found on his person, which he was likely carrying in order to convince the Swiss to grant him political asylum, he immediately became the prime suspect, and he was transferred to Gestapo headquarters. Investigators at the bomb site found brass plates in the wreckage, which were stamped with patent numbers belonging to one of Elzer's former clock shop employers. Surviving Burger Browkeller staff members fingered photos of Elzer as a frequent patron. Gestapo agents questioning Elzer ordered him to pull up his pant legs, and, as they suspected, his knees were badly bruised, suggesting long hours spent kneeling on a hard surface. Interrogators then took great pains to ensure that the rest of his person became similarly bruised. Gestapo agents identified and gathered up all of Elzer's family and known associates throughout Germany, including friends, employers, and ex-girlfriends, and brought them to their headquarters in Munich. Family members were made to watch as the bruised and bloodied Elzer was questioned. One police officer who witnessed some of the interrogation commented, Elzer, who was groaning and bleeding profusely from the mouth and nose, made no confession. He would probably not have been physically able to, even if he had wanted to. Elzer was also made to watch as his family were pressed for answers that they didn't have. About a week after the Burger Browkeller blast, having absorbed considerable physical and psychological punishment, Elzer sat down at a desk and scratched out a full confession. He explained that his motive was to preempt even greater bloodshed. In further interrogation, he reluctantly explained, I reasoned the situation in Germany could only be modified by removal of the current leadership. I mean Hitler, Goering, and Goebbels. I did not want to eliminate Nazism. I was merely of the opinion that a moderation in the policy objectives will occur through the elimination of these three men. Gestapo agents initially suspected that Elzer was merely the final cog in a much greater conspiracy machine, but he assured them that he had acted alone. He did not amend this answer despite the application of heat exposure, dehydration, drugs, sleep deprivation, and hypnosis. Investigators could find no actual evidence of co-conspirators, and Elzer seemed to have a full knowledge of every detail of the attack, therefore interrogators reluctantly concluded that he was the sole party. Nevertheless, the Reich's Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda decided to tell German newspapers that the would-be assassin had been funded by the British intelligence service. The interrogators also questioned Elzer about his explosive invention, which reportedly made him much more cheerful. Cheerful isn't exactly the right word but it brightened his mood as much as circumstances would allow. He described the mechanism with pride and enthusiasm, and drew up several detailed schematics of the intricate time bomb. The Gestapo would later include these designs in their training manuals as an example of an excellent improvised explosive. Said one of his interrogators of the device, I've never seen such an ingeniously constructed infernal machine. The man was a genius. Georg Elzer spent about a year imprisoned in the Gestapo headquarters, subject to occasional questioning, beatings, and miscellaneous torment, before he was finally transferred to Sachsenhausen concentration camp in 1941 to await his inevitable show trial. For four years, he was held as a special prisoner there, which granted him sanctuary from most atrocities. He even had access to a small woodworking space, where he had the occasion to construct, and enjoy playing, a zither. In 1945, Elzer was relocated to Dachau concentration camp, but he would not live there long. The advancing allies were pressing ever closer to Berlin, and the Third Reich's outlook was grim. On the 5th of April 1945, the commandant of the Dachau concentration camp received an order regarding Eller, which was Georg Elzer's codename at the camp, sent from the highest tiers of Nazi leadership. It read, in part, On the occasion of one of the next terror attacks on Munich, or, as the case may be, the neighborhood of Dachau, it shall be pretended that Eller suffered fatal injuries. I request you, therefore, when such an occasion arises, to liquidate Eller as discreetly as possible. Please take steps that only a few people who must be specially pledged to silence hear about this. The unusual delicacy of Elzer's execution order was curious, considering that he had already been largely forgotten by the understandably distracted German public, and in light of the millions of people who had already been exterminated in Nazi concentration camps. This special attention has since precipitated a handful of spurious conspiracy theories, such as the hypothesis that Elzer was actually an SS agent all along, and that the Berger-Braukeller attack had been staged as a way to rally support behind Hitler. But that suggestion is supported about as well as a competing hypothesis that Georg Elzer was... every time traveler, ever. Just four weeks before the end of the war in Europe, on the 9th of April 1945, the Commandant of the Dachau concentration camp had occasion to follow through on his kill order. High-ranking camp officials escorted 42-year-old Elzer to the Camp Crematorium. They shot him without ceremony. The onlooking Nazi officers dutifully burned the remains. Three weeks later, Elzer's original assassination target Adolf Hitler also absorbed a single fatal bullet, his self-inflicted. The onlooking Nazi officers dutifully burned the remains. Georg Elser's story was largely unknown until Helmut G. Hasses published a well-researched biography of Elzer in 1999. In Germany today, he is widely admired as a true hero. The country is peppered with plaques, statues, and other monuments honoring Elzer, including a 56-foot-tall steel monument which stands in Berlin. There are streets and schools named after the man, and a commemorative postage stamp bearing his photograph. There are even several community social halls named in Elzer's honor, which has a certain morbid irony. The Burger Keller was never rebuilt after the blast, but today, where the building once stood, at the very spot where Elzer installed his clandestine bomb cubby in 1939, there's a memorial placard embedded in the pavement. It reads At this point in the former Burger Brau Keller, Johann Georg Elser tried on the 8th of November 1939 to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He wanted the terror regime of the National Socialists put to an end. The plan failed. Johann Georg Elzer was, after five and a half years on the 9th of April 1945, murdered in the Dachau concentration camp. Something with a clock in it might have made a nice monument there. So although he's regarded as a true hero in Germany today, maybe hero isn't exactly the right word. This man, Georg Elzer, tried to eliminate arguably the worst human in history. But he failed, and his indiscriminate time bomb instead killed eight bystanders and injured scores more. And it could have killed hundreds of onlookers if it had detonated as intended in the middle of Hitler's address. It is impossible to know if Elzer was informed by some kind of inhuman intuition or whether it was just serendipitous insanity, a stopped clock's inevitable but infrequent accuracy. In any case, we emphatically discourage the use of unilateral violence to affect political change, even while we wish Georg Elzer had succeeded.
1: Let's go bumming, oh let's go bumming, like United nation's airmen do in the night when peaceful citizens are sleeping far from any gunfire we are keeping let's go shelling where they're dwelling let's shell churches, women children too let us go to it Let's do it! Let's bum neutrals too! Let's go bumming! It's becoming quite the thing to do!
0: This episode was entitled The Clockmaker. It was written and produced by me, Alan Bellows. The music you're hearing is genuine Nazi propaganda swing music recorded by Charlie and his orchestra before and during World War II. Swing music was not approved of by the Third Reich, but they made an exception when it was used as a vehicle for propaganda. The result is a weird combination of hate speech couched in big band dance tunes. You can find a link to more by visiting damninteresting.com and searching for The Clockmaker.
1: Let's go shelling, where they're dwelling. Let's shell churches, women, children too. Let us go to it, oh, let's do it. Bum neutrals too Let go bumming It's becoming Quite a thing to do
0: The Zither music used in today's episode was furnished by Etienne Delavo. For a link to more of his music find the Clockmaker article on daminteresting.com and look at the related links section If you have the time and the wherewithal we would be absolutely tickled if you would rate this podcast on your podcast service of choice whether it be iTunes, Stitcher, or other Also, if you want more damn interesting audio content such as this, go to damninteresting.com and click audio at the top of the page to get to our SoundCloud, audiobook, and or podcast. This was Damn Interesting.